Well, one of the features of stories that grip us most effectively is they often leave us with questions, especially lingering questions, about what will happen next. Um, I've gotten hooked on this show called The Old Man on Hulu. I don't know if any of you have seen it or if I should even admit that I've been watching it, but, but it's one of those shows that, that's gone back to that very ancient model of just releasing one episode a week. And uh, it's, it's been very difficult for me because up until the, the season finale, which just happened on Friday, I've had to wait a whole week to see what will happen next. You get very used to at least being able to dip into the first five or ten minutes of the next episode to make sure everything is okay. We couldn't do this. We had to, had to wait for a whole week to go by. Uh, but in the end, I think it's part of what made the show so appealing and that you have to really live with this tension while you're waiting for the, while you're waiting for the next episode. Uh, it's the best stories that leave us with that almost foreboding sense of wondering, you know, what's going to happen now? And, and that's certainly where we've been left in the narrative of 1 Samuel between last week and this week, uh, because as we know, David, who is God's anointed king, Saul, you know, has been stubborn. He's refused to give up his royal position. Um, but we see that David, even in all of that, is still on the rise. David's anointing seems to have been kept somewhat secret still. But in the last chapter, David is doing what God's anointed king is called to do. Uh, David is protecting and delivering God's people. He ultimately defeats Goliath. So, so while Saul may still wear the crown, so to speak, and even possess the political authority, the social status in Israel, uh, there is no doubt, especially for us as the readers, that David is the one uh, whom God is with. David is the one uh, that God is going to use to, del- to deliver his people. And so uh, after chapter 17, last time, we're wondering where are things going to go from here? What's going to happen next? Because after all, David has been anointed by God. And while that was done uh, with some measure of secrecy, uh, David has now just, just proved himself very publicly to be the powerful deliverer that God's people need. He's the one who took out the giant. And so, and so what now? Is Saul going to insist on, on maintaining the throne? Or will David finally take his rightful royal position? After 1 Samuel 17, we're very much left with this what will happen next kind of question. And the answer to that question begins to be worked out for us in our chapter today. Uh, the, whole, the whole Goliath episode and, and what follows in chapter 17 uh, now elicits two main responses to David as we get into chapter 18. And, and what we'll see is that on the one hand, there's this response of deep affection and recognition of David. We see that in the first seven verses. And then in verse 8 and on, in the rest of the chapter, we find an emphasis there around a deep hostility and malice toward David. Uh, And it's these two responses, one of affection, one of deep malice, it's these two responses that are worked out. And as they're worked out, we're brought further along in the narrative and, and an understanding of the royal uh, progression, if we can put it that way, of God's, of God's anointed king. Here's how David will ascend to the throne. It's not necessarily in a way that we would expect. Uh, but in this, we see not only what's true about David, uh, but we're also compelled forward to see the one who David's life is ultimately pointing toward. Uh, we know the life of David and all its historicity and truth is ultimately directing us to consider the life and royalty of King Jesus, David Uh, David points us to Jesus, not least of all as we consider uh, both the affection and malice that are directed toward David in this passage. David directs us towards Jesus. Now, I want to say something about that comment because this is important for us as we we grow as students of the Scriptures. And and for some of you, I know know you know this, but it's good refreshment. Um, We we need to be able to, to put that in the right context when we make a statement like David points us towards Jesus. 
uh, when we study the Bible, we're applying ourselves uh, all the time to the dis- discipline of theology. Uh, the word theology is, is those two words in Greek put together, theos, which is God, and logia, which is sayings or, or words. Uh, so theology itself is just a word that means words said about God. Theology is the study of God. And, th- and there are different kinds of theological work that we do while we study the Bible. Um, so, for example, a few weeks ago, we applied ourselves to what's called systematic theology, uh, where we, we had to work hard to figure out, uh, at least to, to try to wrap our mind around understanding what it could mean that God would send an evil spirit to torment Saul. If you remember what we did there in, in chapter 16, God sent an evil spirit to torment Saul. In systematic theology, we applied ourselves to, to putting together different parts of God's revelation in order to put together this, this cohesive picture of what's going on there. Um, we, we put together different parts from God's Word to help develop a more clear picture. And that's what we did when we looked at God and the evil spirit situation, something that shows up again in our passage today. We look at these various scriptures and attempt to bring truth together for the purposes of clarity and seeing how God works. So systematic theology is a matter of, of putting together those different parts that help us understand the whole we could think of it maybe as assembling different puzzle pieces, and as we do that, a clearer picture uh, begins to develop. That's systematic theology. But systematic theology isn't the only kind of theology we apply when we study the Bible. In fact, uh, especially when we engage in expositions of Old Testament Scripture like we've been doing, what we often engage in is what's uh, commonly referred to as biblical theology. And biblical theology is different than systematic theology in that if if systematic theology puts together these puzzle puzzle pieces to give us a more cohesive whole, what biblical theology does is look at the progress of God's revelation and ask how the truth of this particular section that we're studying fits into the the narratival, the, 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 the revelatory whole of what God is showing us throughout the storyline of the Bible. So, so biblical theology isn't so much a, a part-by-part puzzling something together as it is more akin to understanding how one scene maybe fits in the whole of a movie, if we can put it that way. These things are all connected in a kind of progressive storyline. And it's biblical theology that's most helpful when it comes to saying something like David points us to Jesus. Because in biblical theology, we're looking at our subject, in this case King David, and we're asking how King David fits in the whole unfolding history of God's plan for the world. How does this scene fit in the entirety of God's saving plot line uh, that's revealed to us through the Scriptures? And as we start to, to ask that question, as we start to do this, we see that David plays a very important role and that while being a very real historical figure with his own unique experiences and all of those things, the Scriptures specifically connect David, God's anointed king, to Jesus, God's ultimate anointed king. Uh, we have that connection in, in the immediate text of Scripture in many places. For example, 2 Samuel 7, we'll see this very plainly, where the Lord promises to David that through David's family line, there is going to come an eternal king over God's people. That David's line is going to be the Messiah line. It's going to be Christ's line, humanly speaking. Isaiah the prophet picks this up. The gospel writers in the New Testament, Matthew, for example, Matthew goes to great lengths to show us that Jesus' family lineage is David's family lineage, humanly speaking. Paul, when he explains the gospel in Romans 1, uh, he, he incorporates this as well. Just, just listen to how Paul puts it when he starts his massive and, and extraordinary letter to the Romans. This is how Paul begins by, by, by defining terms. He says, Paul, a servant of, of Christ Jesus, 
called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now he starts to explain the gospel, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, Paul, now what's the first thing you're going to say about Jesus Christ, our Lord? Well, who was a descendant of David. So, so, so the gospel of Jesus has been promised through the Old, script, the Old Testament Scriptures, Paul says, and it's central to the fact that he is a descendant of, of King David. So, so as we study our Bibles, part of our task is watching how David fits in the total storyline of God's saving purposes. And the way that David fits in as God's anointed king is to function as a genuinely historical figure who at the same time is ultimately directing us towards God's final king, toward, toward Christ. And in that way, we can look at David, we can see the way the Lord is working in David's life and experiences, and we can actually gain insight into what God's final king will be like. Now, David is not a complete picture of Jesus, of course. Only Jesus is the complete and full revelation of, of the Messiah. But, but, in, but in what the writer to the Hebrews would call shadows, David is a kind of royal shadow of the final royal king. And so as we study David, we do so remembering that Jesus expected the people of his own day to recognize him for who he is based on the way Old Testament scriptures were unfolding things for them. So, so the scriptures testify to me, Jesus says in John 5, and David is one of those characters that helps give us a picture, helps foster our expectations and, and, and clarify things for us in terms of who it, who it is exactly uh, that Jesus has come to be. So I say all that to say that when it comes to our studies, and you get this too, you'll get this in the coming weeks, as, as, as Jason and Josh and Luke are all going to preach as well in the coming weeks. Our, our task as preachers is to set our context down in the immediate historical setting. We start there, but we know as we study our Bibles, we don't end there, because ultimately all God's truth is driving us forward toward the climactic realities of Jesus Christ. And as we study the life of David, we have, we have a kind of softball in terms of biblical theology. And, and that we look at David and we can't help. And you felt this even with the Goliath story, with all these narratives. You can't help but almost tumble into seeing the realities of Christ as David exercises his calling as king. Um, so, so all that to say, we're going to study ch chapter 18 of 1 Samuel today. But we're, we do so, as we always do, mindful of the fact that what's true about God's anointed King David is meant to be a kind of shadow. It's meant to orient us in a proper understanding and expectation of what's true about the ultimate King Jesus. Even in David's failures, which we'll see later on as we, as we keep studying, even in David's failures, they remind us that we're still looking for another. We're still waiting for that better king than David himself. So all of this is, is ultimately directing us to Christ. And that's just something I, I know you know we talk about that with regularity, but, but just to have our minds framed by that is critical. So with all that in, in mind, chapter 18 is, is this what next that follows the Goliath episode. And, and, and what's next is that there are two very clear responses now to David as he's been thrust uh, onto, the, onto the public stage. Uh, first of all, there's this response of affection and recognition, which we find in verses 1 to 7. And then there's this response of deep hostility and malice, uh, which comes in the rest of the chapter. Which even in saying that, where does your mind immediately go? Well, you immediately think of the realities of Jesus' ministry. What did Jesus encounter in his earthly ministry? He encountered those who would love him, and he encountered those who very much desired that he would be dead. And so even as we come to this, we feel those, those shadows uh, casting, uh, casting us forward. So we'll start with verses 1 to 7, 
There we have affection and recognition of David. Um, and again, this is, this is one of those things where, where there's so much packed into the chapter, we can't do it all justice in one sermon, uh, but, but we, have to, uh, we have to be careful. I, yeah, there's lots to talk about. We'll see, we, we'll see how we do here. So verse 1, um, you see, verse 1, really, just like a good episode of your favorite show, we haven't missed anything. We haven't missed a beat since things were left off at the end of chapter 17. Um, so we left David speaking with Saul about his family uh, right after he defeated the, uh, Goliath at the end of chapter 17. I remember Saul had made that promise to him that if whoever, whoever defeats Goliath, well, they're going to get his daughter as, as a wife, so you win the princess, and you're going to be wealthy, and your family's going to be tax-exempt. And so Saul is trying to figure out who David's family is there at the end, and uh, David's telling him he's the son of Jesse, he's from Bethlehem. David finishes speaking with Saul, and the next thing we're told is that Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Uh, so we have a friendship beginning here in verse 1 between David and Jonathan. And in this description of Jonathan and David's friendship, we actually have a main theme of the whole of chapter 18 start to emerge. And that theme revolves around the fact that six different times in this chapter, we're told of different individuals or groups' love for David. Uh, so we have Jonathan's love for David in verse 1 and then again in verse 3. And then it's Israel and Judah's love for David down in verse 16. And then Saul's daughter Michael's love for David in verse 20. And then it's Saul's servants who love David in verse 22. And then in verse 28, again, we're told about Michael's love for David. So, so we get this six times from different groups or people throughout the chapter. There's an extraordinary affection uh, for David among all the people of Israel. And, and at least in part, that affection is connected to a recognition of what David has done and continues to do. So, so in verse 3, we're told that Jonathan loved David, and then the text says that Jonathan removed his robe, military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt, and gave them to David. Now, now Jonathan is Saul's son, remember. By, by all regular political measures, Jonathan is the heir apparent to the throne of Saul, uh, but what Jonathan does here is extremely symbolically important because instead of feeling threatened by David as a result of David's extraordinary military success over the Philistines, instead of being threatened by David, uh, through his giving of these garments, Jonathan is actually indicating in a very culturally recognizable way that David is, is the royal son. He's the one who should be, be the next king. Uh, that, that's what the symbolic giving of the garments reflects. There are, there are ancient Near East documents that point to this as an indicator of, of giving up one's royal status. Uh, one had to do with a Akkadian king who was going through a divorce and, and his son, the prince, was siding with the mother. And the king told his son that he either sides with him or he leaves garments just like this, all his garments on the throne because he's abdicating his, his future role as, as the king. And so, and so this is very symbolic just in the ancient Near East culturally. Jonathan's actions are, 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 given, are demonstrated here to indicate that not only is Jonathan entering into a unique commitment of friendship at this point with David, which is something that's going to be very important as the narrative goes on, uh, but not only is Jonathan entering into a covenant of friendship with David, he also divests himself of royal status and is passing that status symbolically over to David, which is just a remarkable thing. And we get a clue as to what's behind all this as we start to fill in some of the details with the rest of these verses here. So we've got to think about all this put together. Uh, so if you're watching the text, in verse 2, uh, we, we were told that after Goli the, the Goliath episode, Saul keeps David close. 
so in chapter 17, we were told about how David was going back and forth between Jesse, his father's uh, sheep, tending the flock, and coming and helping Saul. He was playing his instrument to help relieve Saul from the, uh, from the distress of the evil spirit. We were told Saul, uh, David was going back and forth at that time between his home and Saul's courts. Now Saul is keeping David close, and we're not told why just yet, uh, though that's, that's going to come here in a minute, but we just keep that in mind, because then in verse 5 we're told that Saul puts David in command of the fighting men, and then again, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants, the text tells us. Uh, scholars point out that, that given the language that's here, it seems that Saul put David not just in charge of a regular military battalion, he'll do that in a, in a moment, David's going to get a demotion, uh, but right here, David's put in charge of more elite fighters. That's what the, the language indicates. So David's not just a regular battalion leader here, first of all, but he's something like the head of a special forces group uh, in Israel. And all the people of Israel and Saul's own servants even, they're really glad about this. Why wouldn't you be? He's the one who took out Goliath after all. He should have this position. And then in verses 6 and 7, we have this flashback to the army coming home after David defeated Goliath and the Philistines. And we're told there how the women came out uh, from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines and shouts of joy with stringed instruments, all of these things. And as the women came out to meet King Saul and his army, what do, what do they sing about? Well, they sing that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his, his ten thousands. It's very noteworthy that the last time we read about the women of Israel celebrating like this, it was after the Lord crushed Pharaoh and his army as they crossed the Red Sea back in Exodus 15. This is, this is a dance of deliverance that the women are engaged in here. And while they're singing to Saul, who are they most excited about? Well, they're most excited about David because David is the one who's brought this rescuing victory. David's rescuing victories are bigger. He's a better deliverer than Saul is. That's, that's what they're singing about. So, so start putting some of this together, um, and, and, and it starts to fill in for us. In the past chapter, in chapter 14, you remember how Jonathan had been a mighty warrior for Israel. He fought uh, bravely and with faith. But in the Goliath episode, Jonathan is nowhere to be found. Now, now we know he was geared up for battle because he just gave all his battle garments to, to David. He had all his gear with him, so, so he was there. But Jonathan apparently seems to have been in the terrified group that with Saul retreated every time Goliath was going out. Jonathan didn't go fight. He, he was right there with the group who was fearful of Goliath and going back. And so on the other side of David's defeat of Goliath, Jonathan demonstrates not just his deep affection for David, uh, but he demonstrates it in a way that says, you deserve to be king. You're the one who's really fighting for us. And, and then we also read about how Saul puts David in charge of the special forces team. And what does David do? Well, we're told he's successful in all these missions that Saul is sending him on. And then in the song the women sing, they reflect on, 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 on the, the victory that David's won in an ultimate way, reflecting the practice of the Israelites after being delivered from the Egyptians, all these kinds of things. We put this together and we have a section detailing how the people's unique affection for, the king, for David and the recognition of David is centered on the fact that he's the one who has brought the deliverance they need. This affection and recognition is grounded in the fact that David is the one who's brought deliverance from the enemy. David is actually doing what the king is supposed to do. Um, he, he's continually fighting for God's people. He's winning the heir apparent to the throne, Jonathan. He recognizes this, and he doesn't resent David for it. He actually loves David for it. He obviously knows his own fearful heart. The people of Israel and even Saul's servants, this is pleasing to them. And the women are rejoicing, singing a song about David's battle glory to the present king. 
which is quite a bold, a bold thing to do. They love David because he fights their terrifying enemies for them, and he wins. So now, now with that, we, we can do a little bit of biblical theology here because this narrative gives us a historically true report of the people's deep affection for God's anointed king because he's the one who fights for them. And so in light of that truth, we need to relate that to what this is communicating to us about the way God's ultimate anointed king is going to work. How do we relate to the greater David, King Jesus? And what we understand from a passage like this is we relate to Jesus in the exact same way uh, these, these uh, Israelites are relating to David, at least in the way it's depicted here. We love Jesus, and why do we love Jesus? Well, we laud Him, we praise Him, we revere Jesus because He's the one who's won our victory. That's, that's the truth of the center of the gospel, which is actually something that is, that is so amazing about the Christian faith. And in all other religious systems in the world, the onus of victory is upon you. It's upon me, right? So, so in Buddhism, overcoming is accomplished by me traveling the eightfold path. That's how I'll overcome. In Hinduism, the path to true freedom is through my engagement in the way of knowledge or the way of love or the way of work or the way of the, of the, of the psychophysical, all of those kinds of things. In Taoism, it's the cultivation of your inner force. But, but you see, with God's better king, everything is different. And this text is pointing us toward the truth of that. So, so, so why is Jonathan overwhelmed with affection for David? Why are the people so pleased that David is leading the special fighters? Why are the women dancing and singing to the current king about how David has been more victorious than him? Why all this affection and recognition? Well, they're responding to God's chosen king who has won the victory for them. He has done the work they needed doing on their behalf. And that's where we get pressed toward Jesus in the true center of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not about the path you must climb or the power you must exercise or the life force you must cultivate. The Christian faith is about the better king who despite me and in the midst of my own powerlessness and fear, the better king is the one who gains victory for me. That's what David did historically for Israel against the Philistines. And that's what Jesus does cosmically as God's greater anointed king for us. Jesus came. He lived the perfect life before God that we could never live. He offered that life as an acceptable sacrifice on the cross for our sins. He makes us pure. He completely frees us from the eternal bondage of sin and death from those enemies. Jesus in his power brings us to freedom, which is why, like Jonathan did with David, this is why we say, Lord Jesus, you're king, not me. You're the one who fights and wins. I'm, I'm actually quite terrified left to myself, and if I'm honest with my own heart, but you're the one who fights and wins. This is why, like the people who took pleasure in David's victory, this is why we take extraordinary pleasure in David's victory and Jesus' victory over sin and death. We celebrate the fact of his resurrection and his, and his imminent return. And this is why, like the, like the women sang about David as the better fighter, this is why we sing about Jesus as the better Savior. Even for our service today, how did we start our service today? Well, we sang this, death is defeated and Jesus reigns. If that's not true, we have no reason to gather together and celebrate except that death is defeated and Jesus reigns. So tell the world there's hope in his name. He pushed back the darkness. He conquered our sin. Right? And Christ will make all things new again. You notice what's in there about me? What's in there about me? I'm the needy one. I'm the, I'm the one who's lost in sin and trapped, not free. Jesus is the one who comes and he pushes all of these things back for us. He works victory for us. 
So we start singing that way, knowing that in Jesus, while we're overwhelmed oftentimes with sorrows that can afflict us with Jesus, we're actually overwhelmed in ultimate affection for him. And we occupy ourselves with the recognition of him because I can't save myself from terrors. And he did. And this is the center of Christianity. I can't save myself from that which would entangle me and bring me down to death. But this is the good news about God's anointed king. To trust in Jesus is not to trust in myself. Not to say, I'm going to do this much and hope somebody else makes up the rest. No, no, no. To trust in Jesus is to say, he's the one who wins for his people. He wins for all who trust in him. He saves, he rescues. And out of that victory, our response is a life of ongoing affection for him we loved him we love him because he saved us which is just something we have to have the right way around in our minds we love him because he saved us we want to dwell on that even with regularity sometimes we can grow a bit cold in our love for christ and oftentimes just because uh, these kinds of things tend to slip our minds so we, we can just check ourselves have have i dwelt recently on the fact that eternal judgment and death is a much bigger problem than any philistine and their giant and have I dwelt recently on the fact that Jesus has made it so that death and judgment neither are an end for me anymore, but instead there's promise of eternal and better life forever for all of God's people who've been reconciled and set at peace with God because of Jesus' victory. And out of that we respond in a love for him. We say, Lord, you're the one who I have ultimate allegiance to. You're the one who I have affection for because I know my weakness. I'm not able to climb the eightfold path. I'm not able to do these things. I need somebody to come and be my rescuer. And that is exactly who Jesus proves himself to be. And so, as David is loved and recognized as the one who delivers, here in verses 1 to 7, we see how that's compelling us forward toward Jesus. He's the one who does this in the ultimate way for us. And so that's the first response here. David is, is, uh, is uh, in a place of receiving the people's affection and recognition. Uh, but we also know that that's not the only response to David. Uh, because as we look at the rest of the chapter, which we'll do, which we'll do relatively quickly here. But in the, in the remaining verses, beginning in 8 and on, we see that the, the other response to David is, is one of deep hostility. Uh, there's deep hostility here, uh, particularly as it centers on King Saul's response. Uh, so look at verse 8. In verse 8, uh, we're told that Saul hears the women's songs, song and he resents the song. Uh, he wanted the credit for winning more than David, even though so far uh, we remember how Saul's battle glory includes sitting under a pomegranate tree in chapter 14 while everybody's supposed to be fighting. And then in chapter 17, when Goliath comes, even though Saul is the one who's head and shoulders taller than everybody else in Israel, he's leading the retreat back to the tents when Goliath is taunting them. So, so his, his glory is hardly there in terms of, of, of the battle record. But he still resents the song. Um, we actually could be a little more literal with the text translation here. And we, we can read that the song was evil to him. It, it was noxious to him. Um, they, David is credited with more than me. Now Saul is very nervous about what's going on with the kingdom. Soon the whole kingdom is going to be his. Uh, clearly, clearly he's the one the people are, are, are celebrating. And if if Saul has a moment of honesty, he'll also see David as the one who genuinely is winning. Um, so in verse 9, Saul watches David uh, with jealousy from that day forward. Which, remember, this is them coming back now from the Goliath situation. All of that, as we jump around in time here a bit in this passage, that actually puts verse 2 in perspective. Where we were told that, that Saul kept David near. 
You know, he, Saul, Saul didn't keep David near after the Goliath episode because he loved him, though he once had loved him. But that's, that's not the reason he's keeping David near now. He's keeping David near with an eye on him. He remembers, no doubt, what Samuel said back in chapter 15, verse 28, about the Lord. You remember giving the throne to a neighbor of Saul who's better than him? Right? So Saul's watching David. Saul's hearing the, the women sing the song. Uh, there's actually a play on words there in verse 9 as well. The, he, the Hebrew word used there for watch, if you see that, it's actually very close to the Hebrew word for iniquity. Uh, so, so, so Saul's jealous and he's watching David, we could say, with an evil eye uh, because of this. And, and the things only get worse because in verses 10 to 11, Saul then acts out overtly against David in violence. He wants David dead. And so as you look at 10 and 11, we see this evil spirit, which reflects God's judgment upon Saul. We spent a lot of time working that out a few weeks ago. But the evil spirit is tormenting Saul in verse 10. And Saul's raving. He's angry. And David is there, interestingly, not opposing Saul in the least. But what is David doing? Well, he's playing his instrument as he usually did to help relieve Saul during these episodes. So David's there still as this servant healer, as this, as this a mediator of grace in Saul's life, as much malice as Saul has for David. David is still there exercising kindness. Um, and, and again, the Hebrew text gives us a play on words because while David has his instrument in his hand, Saul has his spear in his hand. So there's, there's, a, there's a, a, a dark parallel that's being drawn for us there. Um, David's bringing relief even to this one who's growing in hatred for him. Saul's preparing for murder and, and he throws the spear at David. And we're told that David got away from him not once, but twice. It's, it's really something to think about David sticking around after the first attempt, isn't it? Two times he got away from him. So, so, so maybe he thought the evil spirit was really getting the better of Saul. He gave Saul the benefit of the doubt. He stayed in that dangerous situation, trying to bring relief. This is what David was there to do. But Saul tried twice, so David ultimately, he got away. And, and we think to ourselves that this whole spear incident, it might, it might just be the evil spirit afflicting Saul. We can imagine how Saul's attendants uh, might, might have said something to David like, well, this is just a, a really bad episode today. Today's worse than normal. We're glad you're here, David. We're sorry about that whole, whole spear thing. I'm sure it's nothing personal, you know, but it is personal because the spear incident, which by the way, a, a king who wants to be known as a great warrior misses a guitar player in his room twice with his long range weapon. So for somebody who wants to be a great warrior, Saul clearly, he's clearly lacking in any kind of skill set. He's no warrior. He's lucky the women sang about him defeating anybody at all, right? But, but, but after this incident with the spear, there's no doubt Saul's out for David's death. It is personal because he gets much more strategic as things go on here in the chapter. So in verse 13, Saul sends David away with, a, with, with, with what scholars point out as a military demotion. So, so he makes David commander, not over a special forces unit like he was, uh, but now over a regular battalion of troops. And, and, and we'll see why here in a second. In verse 14, of course, David, he continues to be successful. He's, he's just successful. When, when Saul saw this, he feared David. We're told he dreaded him in verse 15. But all Israel and Judah, they love David, verse 16. And then we're led in on Saul's subversive plan, uh, which is there in verse 17. Saul, Saul tells um, David that he's going to give him his oldest daughter as a wife, if he keeps fighting for him. Now Saul in all his deceitfulness. He puts a nice spiritual things, uh, spiritual spin on it for David. You know you're going to be fighting the Lord's battles. 
All right? But that's just empty talk from Saul. We know that. He's trying to coerce David into keep fighting. So he says he'll give him a, his daughter if he keeps fighting. And then the narrator lets us into the mind of Saul in the end of verse 17. Where we're told Saul was thinking, I don't need to raise a hand against David. Right? The hand of the Philistines will be against him. So, so we see why he gave David a regular battalion of men instead of that special forces group. He, he wants David dead in battle. Just surround him with the regular soldiers. We'll put him out there, and, and, and hopefully he's going to die. And actually, then both, both of Saul's daughters, two of Saul's daughters, are going to be used to, to play into this plan. So in verse 17, Saul's, Saul's not giving David his daughter like he promised when he fought Goliath. Remember, that was part of the deal. You get the princess, you get wealth, and your family gets tax-free status. So David should have, have, have already had Saul's daughter uh, hand in marriage. But Saul apparently had backed out of all that. Now he's only going to give David his daughter if he'll keep fighting because he thinks the Philistines will kill David for him. But David throws a wrench in that plan when he says that he isn't worthy to be the king's son-in-law. Uh, probably David is, is recognizing Saul has gone back on what he's promised to do. And from David's own immediate position, you see him here even in his, in his humility, though he, he's been anointed as king, uh, David isn't going to, to take Saul's daughter's hand in marriage. He, he, he claims that he's not uh, of the status to marry into the royal family. Um, and so since David won't marry uh, Merib there in the text, Saul actually marries her off to another man in verse 19. But Saul's not done with his plan yet because in verse 20 he discovers that his other daughter, Michael, loves David. And so in verse 21, Saul determines to use her for a trap. Uh, he sends servants, who remember are pleased with David, they're on David's side. They like him. Um, Saul, Saul sends servants to convince David to take Michael as his wife. And while David protests again in verse 23, again, because of his low social status, Saul tells his servants to, to let David know that all he has to do is take out 100 Philistines and bring back their foreskins as a trophy. And that seems good to David. David understands that to be a costly price to pay for, for, for a bride, and so he's going to do that. Um, but in the end of verse 25, we still see Saul, Saul's malicious plan in play where we're told that he intended to call, cause David's death uh, by the hands of the Philistines. That's, that's what's really behind all of this on the part of Saul. After all, how could, how could David actually pull this off? What a, what a gruesome task to be sent out uh, to complete. However, uh, when the servants tell this to David, again, his, Saul's plan totally backfires because David goes out with his men and brings back double what Saul asked for. And so Saul has no other choice but to give his daughter to David as a wife, which no doubt is quite disconcerting for Saul because in verse 28, Saul, for all his dimness and evil intentions, he, he's starting to finally see that the Lord is with David. And he becomes even more afraid of David in verse 29. And we're told that from this point on, Saul is David's enemy. He's his enemy. So now Saul isn't just concerned about David taking over the royal throne because of his fighting prowess, but through his own folly of a murderous plot, David's actually just married into the royal family. So, so Saul thought he had king problems with David before. Now he's really got king problems with David and his, his own fear around the whole situation of losing his throne is, is continuing to increase. So, so we see that while Saul continues in this steep decline, despite some very well thought out crafty scheming while Saul continues into this decline of dread and fear in verse 30 we're actually told there that David was more successful than all of Saul's officers so his name became well known so you've got Saul going down and you've got David going up 
And so in all this, we have a second response to David. First response being affection and recognition. The second response being one of deep hostility and malice. Saul hates David. He wants him dead. Tries to do it himself. Turns out he doesn't have the skill set for it. So he goes to, to, to uh, craft this plan where maybe the Philistines will take him out as I keep sending him off on these, on these uh, impossible missions. But it, it, it never works. And as we think about this, it's just worth noting that the, the hostility in Saul's life is a progressive reality from, for Saul that does continue to bring him further and further out into a place of darkness rather than into a place of relief. And we see this as we connect what's happening for Saul with what was going on for the Philistines back in the last chapter, in chapter 17. Because if you remember that in the Goliath narrative, what marked out God's people as, as the giant was threatening them, what marked out Saul and Israel was their condition of fear. That's something that was repeated for us twice in the text last time. So, so in chapter 17, verse 11 and verse 24, we're told after Goliath is out there taunting him, the people are terrified. Now with David, they're relieved, they're rejoicing, they're singing about his powerful deliverance. But how about for the one who's against David? What's happening for Saul in all of this? Is he securely in his high position? Is he reveling in his royalty? Is he enjoying his status and, and resting in his prominence? Abyss of fear. Right? No, he's actually just moving further and further and further into this abyss of fear. Right? We have this in verses 12, verse 15, and verse 29. Instead of being relieved by God's anointed, Saul is against him, and the consequence is that that fear that was present in chapter 17 is only continuing to grow specifically in Saul's life as he's against the Lord's deliverer. Just listen to this in these verses. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David. Verse 15, when Saul observed that David was very successful, another fear word, he dreaded him. Verse 29, and he became even more afraid of David. So you have this progression of Saul moving uh, further and further into the abyss of fear. And, when, and why is that? Well, it's because no matter how set against God's anointed king a person may be, there is something that becomes very clear, and it's the fact that God's anointed king wins, and to oppose him is to be set at odds uh, with, with the one who offers deliverance in life. It's a fearful position to be in. The Lord is with David, and all through this chapter, what do we keep hearing? And four times, in fact, it's listed here. Verse 5, 14, 15, and 30. The anointed king succeeds. David succeeds, David succeeds, David succeeds. Despite the murder plot, despite the battle skirmishes with the Philistines, despite uh, David's missions to win Saul's daughter as a bride, despite all of these things, the king just keeps on winning because David is God's man. The Lord is with him. And no plots, no battles, no enemy, whether from within or without, can defeat the deliverer king. And as for the one who's opposed to the deliverer king, well, he can plot and plan and deceive all he wants, but he just moves further and further into fear. And the name of God's king by the end is the name that gains more and more renown. Which is something that we just need to be mindful of. There are ultimately... Two ways things go with God's anointed king. And again, we want to be propelled forward into what this is training us to understand. There are two ways things ultimately go with God's anointed king. 
ultimately there is uh, an affection, a recognition, a love, a peace, a rest that comes from acknowledging that in God's anointed king, in the Lord Jesus, I have a place of rest. He's the one who rescues me. I'm dependent on him entirely. And he offers me full, free, and total forgiveness in the kingdom of, of, of God. This is who Jesus is for me. He rescues me. Or there is opposition. And that opposition, while it may appear indifferent for a while, ultimately can't reside in the land of indifference. Ultimately, it's going to reside in a place of deep opposition and hostility. And instead of that deep opposition and hostility being a place of, of, of self-realization and self-empowerment and, and me being able to be the best me I could ever be, I'm in charge of my life, thank you very much. No, instead of me being left there as I reject the Lord's King, what I find myself doing is going further and further and further and further down into this place of fear. We see this even in the Gospels, don't we? How, how do the Pharisees do as they continue to oppose Jesus? Do they, say, do they stay their same calm selves like they were at the beginning of things? You read the Gospels and what happens? They're just more and more and more and more and more and more whipped up all the way through until ultimately they're calling for his death, which at the end, it doesn't prove to be victory at all because Jesus rises and he wins. He can't be defeated. He can't be kept down. So as we put all of this in perspective, we can just be mindful of how things work as we come to know the Lord Jesus. He is the one who offers total and complete deliverance. Total and complete deliverance. In the immediacy of my life, the things that may press me, I have to know that those things are never beyond the total victory of Jesus Christ. We say this to our kids, don't we? We say things like, like nothing can ever make me stop loving you. That's an important thing to say to our kids. We say that kind of thing all the time. A passage like this speaks to us about Christ and says nothing can ever make him stop winning for you. Nothing can ever stop Jesus from being victorious for you completely and fully. This passage makes that evident and clear to us. And at the same time, there is no greater position of fear, anguish, despair, and failure than deciding that this king who works deliverance is a king that I'm going to be dead set against as an enemy. That place is a place of turmoil and ultimate death. And so this chapter sets those things up for us. Here's Jesus, the anointed king, the victor, the one we need to be opposed to him. Where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us in a place of terror. And so we're just brought to, to think about this in our own lives. Have I, have I considered Christ and all that he is in a fresh way again and again as the one who brings deliverance? Or am I sliding like Saul was sliding? He first loved David. You remember we were told that, he, that Saul did love David, but, but that went away as, as the king began to see his own power slipping. And we want to be aware of that, that with the king, uh, we, can never, we can never claim royal rights ultimately, but we must yield to him. And as we yield to him, life is there. To not yield to him is to find ourselves in a place of death and despair. So we're thankful to a chapter like this that it compels us to consider Christ in these ways and we, and we want to do that well this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word and we pray that it would uh, be light to our hearts, that it would compel us to see Christ and the kindness of his glory and his preserving and securing and rescuing power. We pray, Father, that we would have hearts that, were tur that are turned toward him and that we would rest in his eternal care and that we would not be in a place of hostility but instead a place of embrace and affection, seeing Christ as the deliverer that we all need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.